And so we take a break a bit from the the Green Sundays of Ordinary Time to celebrate today the Feast of the Transfiguration. Always it's celebrated on August the 6th, and this year it happens to fall on a Sunday, and so happily we get to celebrate it in the the larger context of the, the communal mass of the Sunday liturgy. And it's a great grace that's offered to us in reflecting upon the Transfiguration. Often it's called to mind during the, uh, during the Lenten season, as indeed as Moses and Elijah are there speaking with our Lord, the Scriptures tell us about the Passion. They're speaking about the things that are to come. And so it's right that it would be during the Lenten season preparing us for the Passion of the Lord that comes during Holy Week. But it's also given to us on, in this month of August as an encouragement to us simply in, in following the gift of faith that we ourselves have received. Now, again, it is um, kind of initially, it is an initial gift to Peter, James, and John, those three blessed apostles who are kind of always at the right hand of the Lord. They're always right there by his side, and rightly so. Peter is, is the head of, you know, will become the head of the infant church. It is James who is the first of the ones, the first of the apostles, to lay down his life. He's the one who is also, uh, you know, in, in Jerusalem, uh, and so... He's the first of the twelve to lay down his life by the shedding of his blood in imitation of our Lord. And John, of course, was there at the cross. He's the one who received Our Lady into his home. He's the, the beloved disciple, always there at the side of the Lord. And so these three men, each kind of having a particular place and a particular, particularly important role in the early church and the first days of the church, they have these various experiences where they, they come along with our Lord, separate from the rest of the group. And they come to this, this particular feast, um, to this transfiguration, and it's a marvelous thing that they behold, right? They behold the Lord who is radiant with light. His face is shining like the sun, his clothes dazzling his light. And so it's this that they see. And of course, again, the, the, the scriptures remind us, and the church reminds us, especially in the preface of today's Mass to the Eucharistic Prayer, it reminds us that, that it was for Peter, James, and John to be encouraged in their, basically in their spirit, to, um, to not be falling away whenever the crucifixion would come, to know that the Lord anticipated these things. Because he says, don't tell it until the Son of Man is risen from the dead, which means he knows death is imminent, the death is coming. So he's, he's already letting them know in a, in, in a somewhat subtle manner that he knows that his death is to come. And this is in light of that, when, 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 they, when they understand his death, this will make much more sense. This will be a place of consolation and of strength. And so it is. Peter, James, and John indeed do find great strength in this mystery and are able to persevere in their gift of faith. But it's not only for them. It was initially for them in that, you know, that, that initial thing for, uh, for drawing encouragement and a passion. But our Lord didn't say, this is just for you, and this is just for the passion. He says, don't tell anyone about it until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. And then, proclaim it, because there is still something necessary for us to comprehend and to, and to integrate into our souls about this mystery of the transfiguration. Certainly, it is an encouragement. We can take from Peter, James, and John's experience, and we too can find consolation and encouragement that the Lord understands these things, that he has things in mind, even when they don't seem to be clear to us, as he was already anticipating his death and resurrection. 
But it is also for us to recognize what the transfiguration really was pointing to. It was the fact of the sonship of Christ. And our blessed Lord, when he goes on the mountain and he becomes radiant with light. And, and we may think that it's kind of like a, a momentary thing where, where he becomes radiant and, and, and thus, you know, it's, it's kind of a special moment. He, he lights himself on fire, so to speak, right there before their eyes. But the reality is that it's more true that Christ was always light. And just during the majority of his earthly life, this moment being an exception, it was veiled from our eyes. That's the true reality. Because when God appears, it's always in a majestic glory. When, he, when, when the Lord led the people out of, out of Egypt, when they were wandering in the desert for 40 years, he led them by a pillar of fire, which was the sign of his presence, the Shekinah glory cloud. It's the, that, that same cloud that descended into the, into the presence of the temple. Whenever Moses goes to encounter the Lord on the mountain, he encounters him in radiant light. So much so, so intense was the light that Moses' face too was shining radiantly when he came down from the mountain, just like the, the, the moon reflects the light of the sun. God is light. The scriptures tell us these things. And so our Lord truly is light. It's his divinity. It's his very nature. And yet his nature was veiled for us out of consideration for us. Because as we see with, with Peter, James, and John, and, you know, they, they see the Lord and they, they hear the voice of the Father, and their faces are immediately falling to the floor. Anytime the people encounter a heavenly vision, they run away from it. They're afraid because they are pretty sure they're about to die because the Scripture, the Old Testament, was very clear. No one looks upon the face of the Lord and lives. So if you think God is close to you, cover your eyes and duck to the ground. Unless you want to die. So that's what people did. And so it seems reasonable that, that the Lord comes and he veils himself. Otherwise, no one would want to come near him. No one would look at him. No one would see the look of love in his eyes for them. No one would draw close. Everyone, everywhere he would go, people would just fall on the ground and, you know, it'd be a marvelous thing. But people wouldn't be able to draw close to him, which was his in intention the entire time. If it wasn't an intention to draw people close to him and to draw us into himself truly in the end, he could have just come in whatever other form he might have desired and not taken on our humanity. If he wanted just to impress us with beautiful things, he could have just come as he had done before in some form of light. But he came in our flesh. Our flesh, united to that divine mystery, and yet simply visible to us as a man. It's this that is an important thing for us, is whenever our Lord shows his glory, he shows his divinity. This is then affirmed by the, by the voice of the Father that booms from the heavens, which the apostles heard, that this is my beloved Son, his Sonship, being Son of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, the One. He is there. It's Christ. And this is what is the, the, the piece for us, is to acknowledge this fact, that he is truly God. It's a controversial thing in the early church of was he God? Was he adopted? Would he, did he become God? You know, did he, was he adopted as a son of God uh, initially? And, and all kinds of things that were, that were rather confusing in the early church. But the apostles are given this great mystery to understand that he is fully God. And yet... Fully man. 
And the reason is to draw us into the heart of the Father and to unite us to himself for eternity in heaven. That's why he came among us and took on our flesh, is that we might be freed from our sins, that the bridge, the, 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 the chasm that separated us from God, namely sin, will be bridged by the person of Christ. And by his arms outstretched on the cross, that we will be able to pass over from this earthly life to an eternal one, from a life where it's a valley of tears to a place where every tear is wiped away and there's the fullness of joy. This is what God desires for us. And this is what the transfiguration continues to, to, to draw us into and really to help us to understand that, that we too are supposed to be light. We're also supposed to be radiant, like Moses was radiant, but not in the same manner, not that we should walk out of church and our faces would be radiant with light and everyone needs sunglasses to look at us whenever we go out for lunch, but rather we should be radiant in the grace of God that's alive in our souls. Because in the same manner that, that our blessed Lord, that he, he, veiled, he veiled his divinity, which was light within him the entire time, so also he, he, he veils himself continuously in the Eucharist. It's only by Eucharistic miracles, like those on the, the posters we show in the back of the church, it's only on, on occasional times where our Lord shows his, his true body and blood in the Eucharist. All the rest of the time, it's veiled. Because if you and I walked up to the, walked up to the communion rail and looked in the, in the, said the body of Christ and it was a, a floppy piece of bloody flesh, most of us would probably go, you know, I think I'll make a spiritual communion today. I'd rather not receive that because that's weird. But it's the true body and blood of Christ that's given to us. But it's in a veiled form, a form that, that's agreeable to us and to our human sensibilities where we can understand it and receive him. And just in the same manner that, that Christ veiled himself so that he would be able to draw close to us and to draw us into himself, so also in the Eucharist. He veils himself to draw close to us so that we might draw close to him and thus be filled with himself, to be filled with his light and his life and his grace. So we might be radiant with, with light in our souls, if not in our faces, to allow the life of Christ to increase in us. This is the mission of the transfiguration. It begins at our baptism when each one of us are also baptized. And though the voice didn't cry out from the heavens, it is the fact that the baptismal rituals, they make of us adopted children of God because we are made part of Christ. We are incorporated into him. We are made members of the body. We are, as the church fathers would often refer, sons in the son. And though it was not spoken from the heavens, the fact is that in our baptism, it is very true that every one of us is looked upon and the Lord sees us as, this is my beloved son or this is my beloved daughter. We're made children of the household of God. And then he gives us his life time and time again in the Eucharist. It not being enough for him just to give us that, that one time and to, to allow it to endure, but rather to come and to nourish us over and over and over and again to perfect us into himself to make us more and more perfectly into him by virtue of the Eucharist, to allow the food that we receive here at the Holy Altar to become everlasting life in us. And so this is the grace that we pray for today, that we might be able to recognize in the Eucharist the same Christ that the apostles recognized on the mountain, and to be able to understand that these mysteries are indeed true mysteries, 
Sometimes they're unveiled for the eyes, but most of the time for us, they come here in that simple form by which Christ has so, so, so kindly loved us, unveiling these things to our eyes to keep us close to himself. So we pray the Lord would indeed strengthen us today to help us to be docile to the work that he desires to continue within our souls in this Holy Mass, to help us to receive the Eucharist worthily and well and to receive it frequently for the continued conversion of our souls and to look forward to the day where indeed we'll be able to behold the face of God and we'll be radiant with light both in our interior and our exterior as we will see him like he is.